This past week, India suffered the largest electrical blackout ever experienced in human history, affecting for several hours an area encompassing about 670 million people, or roughly 10% of the world's population. Imagine trains motionless on the track, miners trapped on the ground, subway lines uh, paralyzed, traffic gone wild in much of the capital, and all of this because of the electric power that went out for just a few hours. Friends, if society has such a side effect from a power failure, I wonder if we feel any side effects in church when God's people fail to pray. Do we see any difference when the church goes through seasons of prayer failure? Are you able to sense a difference between the power of a praying church and the powerlessness of a prayerless church? church. Both might be very busy and active, but that does not mean there's power. Would the church or the society notice spiritual power outages? Well, I would like for us to look at a few essential elements this morning of spirit-empowered, gospel-centered, God-glorifying prayers in the life of the church. Today, I would like to focus our attention on the church's priority and responsibility to pray. We are in our fourth sermon in our series in 1 Timothy, a series that we have entitled, God's House, God's Rules. Since the church is God's house, He gets to make the rules. We are His children, we are in His household, but we don't call the shots. God's house, God's rules. Today, we are going to talk about getting down with prayer the priority and responsibility of prayer in the life of the church. Would you open scripture to 1 Timothy chapter 2? We'll be reading from verse 1 all the way to verse 7. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. If you are using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page number 1028. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. I urge you then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling you the truth. I am not lying and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. Amen. Well, this is the word of the Lord for us, for our time this morning. Let's pray and ask God to lead us and open our hearts to understand it. Father, we declare this morning that Apart from your spirit, we could not understand these words. 
Apart from your spirit, we could not apply them to our hearts. Lord, we ask you, we ask the assistance of your spirit to, to guide us and open our hearts so that we may understand the priority and the responsibility and the centrality of prayer in the life of your people. In the name of Jesus, I pray, and for his honor and grace. Amen. Well, there are many things that take the attention of a church. Outreach. Children's ministry. Discipleship. Caring for the poor. Music ministry. Youth ministry. And all of these are great pursuits. Great things that a church ought to engage in. In this passage, however, Paul tells Timothy about a high priority in the life of the church. And that priority is the ministry of prayer. In this text, we're going to see three things about a church's prayer life. The priority of prayer, the scope of prayer, and the foundation of prayer. The priority of prayer, the scope of prayer, and the foundation of prayer. Look at the priority of prayer in, in chapter 1, in, in, in verse 1 in chapter 2. Paul begins this second chapter with another command. He gave Timothy a few commands in chapter 1 to protect against false teaching, to fight the good faith, the good fight of faith. And now in chapter 2, he begins by saying, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. This verse alone gives us a few indications why prayer should be a priority in the life of the church. Paul is not saying, it would be great if you guys get some time to pray. You know, if the service is not too long, if you guys really think about praying, that would be great. That is not what Paul says. Paul begins this by saying, I urge. This is a command that the apostle gives to the local church. But this command comes with a red flag. It's like on your email when certain messages come with a high priority. This is like a red flag message. This is like a red flag command. I urge then, first of all. Now, the, primis, the, 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 the meaning of these words are, are not so much a point about the, the primacy of time as much as the primacy of importance of prayer in the life of the church. What role does prayer have in the life of the church? What attention does it get in services? How much is prayer practiced, modeled, and taught in church gatherings? We all assume that I'll be praying for you, right? We just do that on our own. But how much is prayer a part of what we do when we are gathered as a community? The priority of prayer is also clear by how many words Paul uses to communicate the concept of praying. Look in verse 1 again. He gives four words. Now, in one sense, all these four words refer to prayer. And yet there's a sense in which each of them carry a different nuance. Requests. Uh, well, this refers, uh, the Greek word specifically, literally, refers to specific requests. Just like the English verse, uh, word tells us. Then there's prayers. This is a more general notion of a word that refers to prayer. Um, it also is, is a word that, that brings, emphasizes boldness in prayer. And then there's intercession. 
And the background for this word is a picture of someone who's coming in the presence of a king and appeals to the king for requests and favors. And then thanksgiving. And thanksgiving is not accidental, the last word of this, of this list, because Paul wants to say that all prayers, requests, and intercessions must be made in the context of conscious, deliberate expressions of thankfulness and gratitude to God. Friends, when we pray, when we bring our petitions to God, we do not come with a demanding attitude or with a desperate and hopeless attitude. But we come with thanksgiving for what He has already done and with thanksgiving for what He is able to do, whether or not He chooses to do it. By using four words to refer to prayer, Paul is drilling into the rich and various layers of a biblically informed prayer life. Friends, for Paul, prayer was not just a string of thoughts we throw up to God throughout the day. But the intentional and de- deliberate activity of the church. This rich description of a church's prayer life echoes the devotion of the first disciples after Pentecost. In Acts 2, we were told that the disciples devoted themselves to prayer. Friends, let me ask you, when we come to church, we all have different expectations. Will the music be good? Will I know the songs? Will the preaching be long? Will the people be friendly? Will I see my friends? Or here's a good one for the summer. Will people notice that I'm back? But let me ask you this morning, do you ever come expecting to spend time in prayer as a family? When you come to church, do you look forward to the times of prayer in our service? If you've been with us for the last few months, you notice that we started putting more emphasis in our corporate services on prayer, to have more times of prayer to spend time in silent prayers and public prayers because we want to model and encourage you to think that an important part of what we do as Christians is intentional prayer, deliberate prayer. Visitors, thank you for being with us this morning. We're glad you're here. Some of you are looking for a church home. Whether God leads you here or somewhere else, in your search for a, ho- for a church home, I encourage you to look for how much Focus a church places on prayer when it gathers. Are prayers sprinkled very lightly in the service, just as a decoration that adds a spiritual coloring? Or is the congregation taking prayer seriously when they gather? One of the things we have changed in our Wednesday night gatherings is that we have refocused our time, our Wednesday night time to prayer. You know, Baptist churches. We call it a Wednesday night prayer night, but most of the time we spend time teaching, talking. So we said, let's let's flip that around. Let's call if it's a prayer night, let's make it a prayer night. And so now we we begin with some with a few songs of of worship, and then we spend our most of our time praying for one another and for the needs of the church, for the needs of the world, for needs of other people. And then if there's time, we do some teaching. If no, we we go home. 
One of the things we want to do is we realize that many of our members are not able to come to Wednesday nights because of traffic, because of where they are. So we're considering in the fall to move our Wednesday night prayer night to Sunday night so that we may encourage you, our members, members of this family, to gather for deliberate times of prayer as a congregation. Because we want prayer to be an important part of what we do, not only in the services on Sunday mornings, but to have a deliberate, emphatic time of prayer as a whole church. A few weeks ago, I mentioned how in Romania, the church often had other labels for the church. They would not refer to the church as church. They would refer to it as the gathering. Because the emphasis was not on a building, but on the actual common gathering of the saints. But another, my wife reminded me, another label, another way we refer to the church in Romania was the house of prayer. So people would ask, so where are you going? To the house of prayer. By even just using that language, it communicated something about what's supposed to happen when we do gather together as a congregation. Friends, is prayer that important in what we do so that when we gather we could refer to this place of worship as a house of prayer. I pray that we as a church would grow, would continue to grow in this direction. So after pointing out the priority of prayer, Paul will describe the scope of prayer and the aim of prayer. What do we pray for when we gather? Who do we pray for when we gather? If we looked at all the biblical texts, uh, that address these questions, um, we would spend lots of time. We will only look this morning to the way Paul answers these questions in this passage, the scope of prayer. Now, please think for a moment about your prayer list. Do you have one? You may or may not have it written down. That's not as important. But think about your prayer pattern. What do you typically pray for? What's the order in which you typically pray for? Typically, most of our prayers start something like this. We address God, first of all, of course. But then we start addressing God for our needs. And then we move on to the needs of our family members. Mom and dad, children grandparents. Then we move on to close friends. Then we move on to church members. And then if there's any time left, we might pray for other miscellaneous reasons of other people. In other words, our prayer list has our needs at the center, and then it moves out progressively in concentric circles towards other people. In this text, Paul is telling us that we should start at the other end. The surprising element in Paul's command is not simply to pray, but to approach prayer with our focus on everyone, on all people. And this is a punchline of these verses. Not simply to emphasize prayer in the life of the church, although that is very important, but to expand the scope of prayer beyond our needs, even beyond the needs of the life of our church. And this focus is not undermining the importance of praying for the members of our church, family, 
or for our own selves. And by the way, if, if you're new to Park Hills, I want to let you know that we are encouraging every member of our church family to pray consistently through the church membership list. We want to commit one another to pray for one another. And yet here Paul says that our prayer scope should be even wider than the life of our church. The principle is simply this. Pray for people you don't typically pray for. Pray for other people. Pray for all kinds of people. Pray for all people. John Stott recounted an experience when he visited a church and the pastor was out. So a church member led in the pastoral prayer. The prayer was focused on the pastor's vacation and a few members that were sick in the congregation. It lasted less than 30 seconds. John Stott was saddened. For that kind of a public prayer gave the sense that the church was worshiping a little village God. There's no recognition of the needs of the world and no attempt to embrace the world in prayer. An example of praying for all kinds of people is given to us in verse 2 in this text. Paul goes very specifically to address a subset of people whom uh, we should pray for, for those in authority, for those in government. Now, why did Paul need to specify this subset of people? Well, before we look at some of the reasons, we need to remind ourselves that when Paul wrote to Timothy, there were no Christian presidents around and no chance that one would ever get elected. Most likely, uh, the guy in power at that time was Nero. Was there any hope for Nero to change? For a man who was so antagonistic against the Christian faith, why should the church pray for hostile kings and government officials? Because they are part of the all-people category. They belong to that category of people for which we should pray for. It is a wide scope of category. In verse 2, Paul gives us a little parenthesis why we should pray specifically for government leaders. It, it's as if he's taking a little, a little synopsis and uh, parenthesis, and he says, For kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. In other words, God placed the government officials to administrate justice so that we may live in peace and quietness. But this peace and quietness is not self-centered. It is God-centered. The ultimate aim of our prayer, prayers for government leaders is that they would maintain a society that is peaceful and allows us to live godly and holy lives. It's not just to allow us to have a nice retirement and untroubled lives. It's so that in peace and quietness, we may pursue godliness and holiness. Friends, the government has no interest in passing laws that are godly or holy. The government has no interest to pass laws that are godly or holy. But we need to pray that they will pass laws that would allow us to live in godliness and holiness. This is one example of praying for all people. Once Paul closes his parenthesis of his thought, he picks up on the need to pray for all people. Again, look at verse 3 and 4. Why should our prayer, our prayer life, have a wider scope than our lives, than, than even the, lives of our, of our, the life of our church? Look at verse 3 and 4. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 
This is the reason why our prayer scope should be wider than our lives or even than the, the, the life of our church. When our prayer lives have a universal scope, it is a pleasing aroma to God. Now, the reason why God takes pleasure when our prayers have such a wide lens is because God's desires are a wide scope, a wide lens. He desires for all people to be saved. And this wide scope is echoed again in verse 6, where we are told that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. In other words, each local church must keep its eyes on God's wide scope of the gospel, a scope that is wider than the local church. God desires for all men to be saved, and the scope of our prayers should reflect the scope of the gospel. Do you see that connection? The scope of our prayers should be as wide as the scope of the gospel. If the gospel is for all people, our prayers should be for all people. Friends, some of you are watching the Olympics these, these days. When you watch them, pray for the nations represented there. Don't just, don't just waste that time. I know you're not wasting it, you're enjoying it. But don't just enjoy that time for yourself. Think about the nations as God is, is represented there in, in UK. So the nations gathered together. Think about the throne. In the book of Revelation, we're told that the people from every tribe, language, and nation will be gathered to worship God. Pray for the nations. Pray for your co-workers. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for other people. Again, this does not mean that we don't pray for our individual needs or for the needs of our church or for the members of our church. Not at all. We should do these things. But we don't stop there. Actually, this week, I've been convicted that I should not start praying by focusing on my needs, but instead start prayers by focusing on the worldwide scope of God's salvation. Here's a challenge I want to give you. Friends, this week, I challenge you to pray not by starting with your own needs in mind and then moving to the wider issues. Start the other way around. Start by praying and praising God for His power to call the people of the earth, of every nation, to be a part of His kingdom. Pray for different nations. Pray for all kinds of people around the world who are still lost in their sins and who need to come to knowledge of the truth. Pray for those things first, and then and only then move progressively inward to your own church and then to your own needs. Try to pray this way and see how your life might be changed to reflect more of the gospel priority than you've done it before. And by the way, this was Jesus' scope of prayer and the Lord's Prayer. He said, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's only the second part of the prayer that, that Jesus teaches us to pray for our own needs. First, we pray for God's plan, for God's kingdom to happen. How amazing that Jesus called his house, not just a house of prayer. He called it a house of prayer for all nations. Actually, when Jesus said those words, he was quoting the prophet Isaiah in chapter 56, when the prophet foretold a time when God will bring the nations to his temple and his house will be indeed called a house of prayer for all nations. How amazing that Jesus 
brought the fulfillment of that prophecy. And now Paul is instructing Timothy that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ must be a house of prayer for all nations. So we looked at the priority of prayer in the church. We looked at the scope of prayer. Now look, let's look at the foundation of prayer. The foundation of prayer. That foundation is the gospel. Friends, let me ask you, do you ever think about the gospel when you pray? When you sit down and, and pray, do you ever just ponder and meditate on the gospel? I encourage you to do that. Most people, when they think about the gospel, they only think about speaking to someone who's not a follower of God. And, and that's, that's part of it. But it's so much bigger than that. I have been teaching us the last few months that the gospel is not just for conversion, but for the ongoing Christian life. A few weeks ago, we saw how the gospel should be included in our testimony. And now we will see how Paul weaves the gospel in the prayer life of the church. Actually, the gospel is the foundation of the church's prayer life. Here's how. Here's how the gospel is the foundation of the church's prayer life. The gospel challenges us not only to widen our scope of prayer, namely for all people, but also to, it challenges us in what we pray for them. Yes, we should pray for people's physical needs. We should pray for their tragedies, for their well-being. But our prayers for other people should be ultimately aimed at their coming to a knowledge of the truth. The need for people to come to the truth is a foundation of our prayer for all people. What is the truth people need to come to know? You would expect that, this, that, that Paul would, would assume that Timothy knew it, right? The truth that people need to know. But here's what Paul does. He, he says the, the truth again. In verse 5, he lays out the truth, the gospel, again. But he's writing this to Timothy, a pastor. Why tell the pastor the gospel? Doesn't he know it? Oh, he does know it. But Paul is bringing the gospel in every time, even to pastors, even to the life of prayer. Look at verse 5. For there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given in its proper time. This is a great summary of the gospel message. It starts off with a picture of God's oneness, unlike the polytheistic cults of Ephesus, which affirm the existence of multiple gods. Christians affirm that God is one in three persons, but one substance. And there's only one true God. This means that all people, regardless of their spiritual interests, are going to be accountable to one God. However, on planet Earth, there are three major religions that claim to have a monotheistic view of God. Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. Worshiping the God who is one is not enough to clarify the truth. It's an important beginning, but not enough. Because Paul goes on and says, and there's one mediator, only one mediator between this God and mankind. And the name of that mediator is Christ Jesus who made it possible for us to be reconciled to God because he paid with his own perfect life the penalty of our sins and he rescued us from our captivity to sin and to rebellion against God. 
That's why his death was considered a ransom for us. This is the truth about God, about the God of the Bible. Any other view of this God is an incomplete, untrue view. That's why even though Islam and Judaism claim to worship one God, Christianity claims that we, we worship the one God to whom we only get through Jesus Christ. Any other way to this God is impossible. Now, this week I had a conversation about what happens to Jews who believe in God but not in Christ. Are they saved? According to this passage, they are still in the category of those who need to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. This is a truth that each person must discover. And it is because so many people still reject this truth or want to find other compromising ways towards it that we, the church, needs to, need to pray for all people to come to the to knowledge of the truth. And we need to pray very seriously. The gospel is the foundation of our prayer life. It determines the scope of our prayers for all people and the aim of our prayers for people to come to the knowledge of the truth. Friends, the call to a prayer life founded on the gospel is a call to think clearly about the truth we're called to proclaim and to pray. It is not just any truth. It is not someone's version of the truth. It's not even our truth. It is God's revelation in His Holy Scripture. Some will say, well, since God wants all people to be saved, that means that all people will be saved. Wonderful logic. Wrong conclusion. It is not true. And this is a hotly debated issue in our world today. What will happen to people who are devout participants in other religions? Will they be saved? What if they had never had a chance to hear about Jesus, but they were devout in their system of religious thought? Will God send them to hell? There are three answers to that question. There are three possibilities. The traditional Christian response is that Christ is the only mediator between God and man, and therefore salvation is only possible for those who put their faith in Christ. This position is called exclusivism. Now, the label is not very good uh, because it makes us feel like we are an elitist class, and we're not. We simply believe that Jesus is the only exclusive way to God, not because we like it this way, but because that's how Jesus presented himself. In John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Many today do not accept this exclusivistic claim that Christ is the only mediator to the Father. So they claim either that God will save people apart from knowing Christ as long as they remain faithful to their belief systems. This is called inclusivism. Others simply deny the truth that there's only one God, claiming instead there's, that all religions of the world are true and equally valid in telling us how to relate to a spiritual world, whether that's formed by one God or many. This, this is called pluralism. Of the three options, Scripture tells us that God revealed himself in an exclusivistic way. Yes, we want all, he wants all men to be saved, but salvation happens only as people come to a knowledge of the truth as revealed to us by God. For there's 
one God, not many. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Friends, because this is the truth that leads people to salvation, the church is called to pray for all people. Our prayers should be gospel-centered, gospel-saturated, gospel-motivated prayers. Friend, I want to remind you that there are many people today who pray and ask God for all kinds of favors without being saved. Our society today does not have a problem with prayer. Many people today, even those who are who, who would not consider themselves active followers of Christ or even Christians, they are okay with prayer. And they pray to God. But not all those who ask God for all kinds of favors it does not mean that that saves them. Do not assume that just because you pray and ask God for help that it is a sign that you're saved. Or if God responds to your temple and earthly requests, that that means that your soul is saved. The practice of prayer should be no sign of assurance that we are saved. And I'm afraid that many people in our culture take the practice, the fact that they pray, as a sign that they must be saved, and they're not. Friends, there's only one way to be saved, not by the practice of prayer, not even by saying a prayer at the end of a service. Can I get an amen from a Baptist church? There's only one way to be saved, and not, it's not by the practice of prayer, but by repenting of our sin and trusting that Christ alone is able to save you from the wrath to come. Believe that Christ is the only mediator to God, that He alone paid the whole ransom price required to rescue us from our sinfulness. Friend, if you confess you are a sinner in need of God, in need to be rescued, and turn to Christ in faith, you will be saved. You cannot put your hopes in your prayer life as a way to be saved. Christ alone is our mediator, and if you have not turned your life to Christ in a decisive way, I encourage you to do it today. If you would like to know more about what it means to turn to Christ, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. Come and talk to me. I'd love to pray for you and explain to you what this means. But for all of us who are Christians who have turned to Christ and have showed that through the public act of baptism, let me ask you, do you pray the gospel? Do you pray because of the gospel? Do you pray in conformity to the gospel? In conformity to the wide scope of the gospel? Is the truth of the gospel clear to us as we pray to God and bring Him requests and petitions and thanksgivings? Or are your prayers typically like this? Lord, thank you for your blessings. Be with us today and help us have some good rain because we greatly need it. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that we shouldn't pray for physical needs or that we shouldn't pray for people's physical uh, illnesses. I'm just saying we should go way more beyond the earthly-focused dimensions of our prayers. Are your prayers filled with the truth of the gospel? I'm not saying that you should just sprinkle some Bible lingo in there. I'm not saying that at all. Don't think that you just need to put some Bible language in your prayers now. If that's what you think, you miss the point. What I'm saying is, I'm asking you if your prayer life is a fruit of a heart that continues to be amazed by the power of the gospel to change people and amazed by the wide scope of the gospel. Is your prayer life an overflow of that? 
Friends, in just a few moments, we will have a special opportunity to reflect on the gospel and to make visible the death of Christ by partaking in his body and blood, which he shed for us. Let this morning message about your own prayer life, about the prayer life of our church, be a diagnosis test of how much the gospel is central in your life. Are you praying with your needs at the center of your prayer life? Or is the gospel the center of your prayer life? If it is the center of your prayer life, if the gospel is the center of your prayer life, it will show by the priority of prayer in your life, by the scope of prayer in your life, and by the content of what you pray for yourself and for others. Let us pray.